The way that I work with people, if they are on some kind of medication, we definitely contract with their provider to get that buy-in, to get the doctors and are signing off on it. The biggest thing that helps people get off sleep medications is building their sleep confidence. And one of the tools that I use in my own practice is called CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. It's a very, very powerful way of dealing with insomnia. It's been around since the 80s, and it's actually been shown to be more effective short-term and long-term than sleeping pills. A lot of doctors don't even really know what it is. There are not that many people in the country, in the world, who really administer CBTI. What I do is I take elements of CBTI when it's appropriate and apply them with my clients. But I'm also looking at overall things that concern their health. I'm looking at their diet. I'm looking at their movement, their chronotype, their routines, their circadian rhythm. There's a bunch of tools in my toolkit that I actually use to help them with their sleep and also build the confidence that they need to have in their sleep. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Still in a period, but feel like you are out of whack and suspect your hormones might be playing tricks on you? It's time to get the lowdown on estrogen dominance with my free ebook. It is the no-nonsense guide to understand how estrogen dominance affects your health. That means things like weight gain, abnormal or heavy periods, even painful ones, fibroids, and much, much more. Say goodbye to the guests and hello to Clarity. Dash on over to ed.hormoneshelp.com. Grab your free copy and start your journey to better health today. Your body will thank you. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. Today, I'm joined by Morgan Adams. She is a transformational holistic sleep coach who empowers women to conquer their battles with sleepless nights without relying on sleep medications. With her powerful sleep toolkit, Morgan not only ensures women experience a profound enhancement in sleep quality, but she also guides them in rekindling their relationship with sheep, paving the ways for less stressful and more fulfilling days. Having struggled with insomnia and dependency on prescription sleeping pills for almost a decade, Morgan intimately understands the profound impact sleep has on the quality of life. Morgan's resilience shines bright as a two-time breast cancer survivor. This experience actually fueled her advocacy for a lifestyle rooted in disease prevention. Her wisdom and guidance extends far beyond just sleep as she companions holistic well-being in all aspects of life. So today I got in deep with Morgan about sleep, how to get better sleep quality, how to make sure that we aren't having a negative relationship with our sleep and so much more. So thank you for joining me. Let's talk with Morgan. All right, Morgan. So everybody, we were having some funny conversations about being in the transitional time of life <laughs> right before we got on this podcast interview. I would say universally, every woman has the problem we're going to talk about today in some way, shape or form. We've got some sleep issues going on. I looked at your bio. We talked a little bit. Obviously, sleep was an issue. When did all this start for you? Yeah, my sleep issue, which was actually, unfortunately, insomnia started 
for me in my mid-30s. I was going through a relationship issue and it was taking me like up to two hours most nights to fall asleep. And I just was like, after two months, I was like, enough is enough. I went to my doctor and I was given prescription sleeping pills. And at the time, during when this was all going on, I was a pharmaceutical sales rep. So there was a pill for every ill, Betty. There was, a, so when I was offered a pill, I'm like, heck yeah, sure. I'm sure this is going to be great. And it did get me to sleep a little faster, as promised, but there were a lot of side effects. And we could delve into that whole issue later, but I ended up keeping with the sleeping pills for eight years. And eight years in was when I met my current husband. He was then my new boyfriend. And he said to me one night, when you take those sleeping pills, it freaks me out because you act like a zombie. And I was like, well, I just really got called out, but in a, in a very nice way. And it was at that point that I decided, hey, this little jaunt with sleeping pills is up. You've got to stop. So I did what I don't recommend doing for anyone out there who's taking sleeping pills. I just took myself off of them. So when you are going off sleeping pills or any medication for that matter, you really need the guidance of your prescribing provider to give you the taper schedule. Ideally, if it's a sleeping pill, you would want to work with a sleep coach to help with the accountability and the support. But I didn't know what a sleep coach was back then. I just winged it. And fortunately for me, because there's a lot of grit in me, I got through it and slept pretty well for years after that. And then there was a plot twist, March of 2020. That was a collective plot twist we all went through together. That was the very beginning stages of the pandemic. And my sleep started to suffer again. And I got really concerned because I did not want to go down that whole road of insomnia again. So I got really proactive. I bought myself an aura ring. I started Googling how to sleep. And you're raising your your hand with your aura ring. Yes, I love it. I was able to get my sleep back on track in pretty short order because I was really committed to it. And I just organically started to share what I learned about sleep on Facebook real casually. And I came to find out that at that time, a lot of other people were suffering from sleep issues. And it was late in 2020 that I decided this is actually going to be your next career move. It just, it hit me like a ton of bricks, Betty. I had been a breast cancer survivor for a few years and it really changed the way I looked at health. And I knew that I wanted to do something to help Help women with their health, but I wasn't sure what that was until my obsession with sleep took over. And I realized I am going to be able to help a lot of women with their sleep. So it was in 2021 that I actually started this practice. And there's a lot of studying and certifications and courses I took along the way, but it's been a fun, wild ride helping women with their sleep. And yes, there are a lot of us out there suffering and struggling with their sleep. Absolutely. You brought up a good point is a lot of times we are given medications, whether it's your benzodiazepines or your ambience and things like that. They sound pretty innocuous in the beginning. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to fall asleep. But one of them might make you zone out and you have no idea what happened, but you might sleepwalk into a neighbor's house, drive your car, go shop, go on Amazon and buy thousands of dollars worth of things because you're unaware of what's happening. But all of them have some pretty nasty side effects. And I don't know if people really know that, right? If that information's gotten really out of, out there. Would you talk a little bit about like some of those classes of drugs and what are their concerns? Because if they're not just innocuous. Yeah. So Anne is part of a class of drugs called sedative hypnotic. They've been around for a while and Ambien's probably like the most popular name brand. And essentially when you're taking something like that, you're really at a space of sedation, not true sleep. It's changing the actual architecture of your sleep. So you're not getting as much rest 
REM sleep, you're not getting as much deep sleep. And so you don't feel quite as restored in the morning. And what we have found is that about 80% of people report next day side effects. Just a lot. That's a lot of people. I was in that group of people. So side effects being like grogginess, trouble getting up, trouble focusing. I personally was not really actually fully awake and alert until close to lunchtime. Created problems in my job because I couldn't work fast enough. I had a job where I had to, at the drop of the hat, like a press release. And I was just staring at my keyboard. What do I write? Because I was so foggy headed. And in 2019, they actually put a black box warning on this class of drugs, which is essentially saying there's some pretty serious side effects. Buyer beware, not buyer beware, prescriber beware. And I don't want to say that there's not some kind of place for a sleeping pill. It was meant to be used short term. So if you even look at the package insert, you'll see that it says up to four weeks of use. That's fine. You're getting through a divorce, a death, a tragedy, and you need something really short term. The problem is that most physicians do not give you an exit strategy on how to stop taking the pills. And they end up kind of prescribing them almost like they're a birth control pill, like every month. And I've had clients who've been prescribed sleeping pills for close to 20 years. So it's, and unfortunately, physicians are not trained adequately in sleep science. They get about two hours on average of sleep science training in med school, which is to me absurd because we're spending a a third of our lives sleeping. So we that's a whole other conversation about institutional practices on educating potential future healthcare providers. But it's a serious situation. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Thinking about the whole ambient and sleep architecture that people don't realize if you don't get true quality deep sleep, you can't consolidate memory. If you don't get good quality REM sleep, you can't consolidate and work through the emotions of the day. Like that is actually the mechanism. That's the important part of sleep. Sleep, right. It's not yes. your eyes are closed and you're not aware like that. <laughs> that's, yes. that's a physiological body experience. But the brain goes through during those sleep cycles are what's important. Amyloid plaques, tau proteins, all those things need to go through that experience to have the brain work properly. And it is a travesty that we do prescribe these things like Pez candy. And it's just like oh, you could stay on that for forever. Who cares? You know. What about people that might have been put on the anti-anxiety medications like your Xanax, your Clonopins, those kind of things? Hey, everybody feels better on a benzo. Okay, let's just be honest. If you're anxious, wound up, can't go to sleep, cranking down the GABA system does make it feel better. But dang, those things are really addictive. Yeah, I've had quite a few clients who have been on benzos. And benzos are one of the hardest drugs to wean off of. It can take a year or more. And the unfortunate part about weaning is that a lot of physicians don't understand how to direct a patient to wean off. And it's a real issue. So they end up getting, they end up staying on it longer and longer because of that terrible titration process that is so hard to manage. So yeah, there are so many other things that we could be doing for people in the initial stages of sleep disturbance besides give a medication. So that's, it's a big soapbox topic of mine if you haven't. I've discovered that already, but there's a book, Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker, a classic at this point. And he has a really interesting section on sleeping pills and the correlation between mortality uh, rates being higher with sleeping pills, cancer rates, collision rates in motor vehicles, infection rates, all of these things that are higher that we don't want are associated with. We have to be careful because correlation does not equal causation, right? But it is the interesting thing to note because especially with infection rates being higher, that really speaks to the fact that, hey, maybe we're really not getting into that deep restorative sleep that we need to clear an infection. And so hence, 
higher infection rate. So there's a lot of meat to chew on. And I think it would be really interesting for them to study that even more. But for now, these are the kinds of the correlations we do have in the literature. Yeah. Jess, somebody who is sleep deprived and somebody who has above legal limit of alcohol in their blood driving have the same likelihood of an accident. Like a sleepy driver is equally as bad as a drunk driver. You said that. Big. It is huge. Yeah. And the drowsy driving thing is a huge issue. Think about all the people who get off work from their shift, an overnight shift, and they're completely zonked and they're driving behind the wheel. I, as somebody who worked a nine to five job back in the days when I was having sleep issues, I was probably driving under the influence of not enough sleep, or maybe I hadn't cleared the ambient out. But it's just, it is a real problem. And people are really vocal about drunk driving, but we haven't sounded the alarm in a public campaign way on drowsy driving. And I really hope that changes in the future because it's a huge issue. Yeah, definitely like the Epworth scale. It's if you do fall asleep at a stoplight, and especially if the sun's shining in the late afternoon, it's if you do, you are overly tired. Yeah, there's a problem. Yes. Yeah. And I think of all the, the truck drivers who have sleep apnea and they're dozing. I mean, that you're driving a semi down the road. It's just, it's a ticking time bomb. Absolutely. So we've talked a little bit about why sleep is obviously important for sleep architecture and brain recovery and things like that. Now you mentioned this, but I'd love to go into it because a lot of times people don't take proactive steps against their sleep and doing things to improve it until it's become like crisis, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, it's a crisis. Yes. It's been two months of four hours a night. So what are some proactive steps people can take before they ever go down that road of taking medications, even before we get to supplementation, because a lot of it is other stuff that you help people with every day. Yeah. So I think that if you are starting to notice that your sleep is a little shaky, the first thing that I would suggest that people lean in on is helping their circadian rhythm, boosting and strengthening their circadian rhythm. And we can do that in a variety of ways. One of the strongest ways we can do that is light and dark management. And what I mean by that is having very bright days and dark nights. So what you want to do if you're really conscious about the light situation is you want to expose your eyes to natural light within one hour of waking up. And what happens when I tell people this sometimes is they're like, oh, cool, I'm going to go out for a morning walk and they've got their sunglasses on. And I'm like, no, that defeats the purpose. Your The light from the sun needs to hit your eyes. And when it hits your retina, it sends a signal to your suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is a circadian pacemaker. And from there, there's this beautiful cascade of neurohormones. I just created a new um, classification there, Betty. <laughs> I do. I do that all the time. I, we have new words every podcast. So essentially the melatonin from the night before is shut down. Your serotonin gets boosted for better mood. Cortisol gets boosted for energy and you start to produce melatonin for the next night. So when you wear sunglasses in the morning, you are depriving yourself of all of those wonderful benefits. And so a lot of times what people will end up doing is they'll have almost like the, the opposite pattern that they should have. Their days are dim. They're in a dark office. And then they go home and they flick on all the bright lights. And really, we just need to be very mindful of having some outside time during the day. We are like living like uh, modern day zoo animals, right? So right now, we're, we need to be outside more often. And then at night, we want to dim down our lights. We want to like maybe salt lamps, red light, if you want to get on the fancier side. So I bring this up because... These are things that are controllable. We can control our light environment for the most part. Another thing that we can do is we can be more consistent with our wake time. So we can set our alarm or get ourselves up at the same time roughly every morning. Again, that is something that strengthens and trains your circadian rhythm. 
And when you do that, interestingly, what you'll find is that your natural time to go to sleep is somewhat consistent because you, when you've been awake for about 16 hours, you've accumulated enough adenosine, which is your sleep chemical, that it has to be released. So you do start getting sleepy around the same time. So therefore, you've got that consistent sleep and wake cycle going on. And then another thing we can do to strengthen our circadian rhythm is just be really regular with our meal timing, trying to have a regular breakfast, lunch, and dinner within an hour or two of each other. So I, I like those things about circadian rhythm because they are, again, within our control. We are able to, for the most part, control when we eat, control when we wake up, and control that light and dark. Absolutely. And get rid of the damn phone in the bedroom. Like, the bedroom should be for two things. Sleeping, and they both start with an S. Sleeping and sex. No TV, no phone. Get rid of that crap. Yeah. The rest of the stuff doesn't need to be in there. I feel bad. I have so many women that'll come in and say, and sometimes they're the culprit, but a lot of times it might be their partner spouse that they're like, they have to watch whatever at night. So they're watching some action movie on a 48 inch screen in their bedroom. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, okay. Yeah. That's so much stimulus, both the bad light and also just the excitement too. So yes. even that bedroom environment is so important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of the top sleep disruptors that I see in my clients is scrolling in bed. I have so many clients who come to me and we're, I'm assessing their sleep and I'm asking them a lot of questions. And what I discover a lot of the time is that they are literally in their bed scrolling at night. So what I recommend for people who have that habit is literally putting your phone to bed in another room, having a, a certain cutoff time upon which your phone just goes into another room and charges itself overnight. And you don't have to see it. You don't want to see it. You don't want to be around it for so many reasons, because it's tempting if you wake up to grab it. It's also emitting EMFs. You don't want that in your sleeping environment. And also, you don't want to see the time right next to you. You don't want to reach over. And if you wake up at 2 a.m., grab your phone and say to yourself, it's 2 a.m. Oh, my God, I've only got four more hours to sleep because that just makes you more anxious about sleep. And you're probably not going to get as much if you've got that anxiety going on. So, yes, we're definitely on the same page about that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so funny. If people have been listening to my show, most of them know that my mom had a heart attack and a stroke back in April. And up until that point, I kept my phone in the other side of the house. It was in the kitchen. So it's literally the room farthest from my bedroom, right? Now, I keep it closer now because I'm afraid somebody's going to call because my mom's in an assisted living and, and those kind of things. But I was really mad that I had to move it closer because I was like, I mean, just like anybody else, I don't have a landline. But I was like, I have to be able to hear if it rings, but I'm mad that I have to have it closer because I don't want the EMFs in the room. I don't want any of it because it is so easy to pick it up and be like, oh, hold on a minute. Just an hour later, you're like, oh, I was on Instagram looking at pet videos. We when we're on our phones late at night, we actually lose track of time. We lose track of our bodily functions. Like we forget that we need to use the bathroom. We just completely dis disengage. And we get sucked in and we get those little dopamine hits just that just keep us going for hours. And we're like, oh, God, it's 2 a.m. So, yeah, if we can just give ourselves that curfew, it is so much better for us than just letting it take on a life of its own. Yeah. One of the things that my husband and I did is we put in amber light bulbs in the bedroom. So the nightstands have amber light, amber lights in it. So if you are turning them on to get ready for bed or whatever. You're also not flipping the bedroom light on. That's a bright blue, which is emitting just blue light. Like it's, it, they're amber colored. So for everybody, it does look a little bit like a 1970s porn set <laughs> with, the, with the amber lighting, but it helps, but you can feel it in your brain. You can feel when you're around amber light, you can feel everything edge down. 
And I wear Viva Ray glasses and things like that. But it's amazing how much you can feel your brain ratchet down if you keep it in that orange light. Yes. Yeah. And one of the things that I think a lot of people do and they don't realize that it alerts them is they get ready for they get ready for bed right before they're about to go to sleep. They go in the bathroom, they flick on the bright fluorescent lights and they brush their teeth and then they're wide awake. So my recommendation for people when they're getting ready for bed is do that kind of stuff on the earlier end, the brushing the teeth, the skincare, and have a low light in your bathroom. Or I have actually a night light that I use when I go in there at a certain time. You probably don't need a ton of light. You need enough so that it's safe. You're not going to trip or whatever. But a lot of people just don't realize that bright light so close to bedtime is just a little too alerting. Yeah, I'm all for the amber lights. And yes, I love Viva Race too. <laughs> I'd be wearing them had my puppy not chewed them. Oh, no. Yeah, I, do, I, I usually wait until after one o'clock and during the day to put them on. And then yeah. I slowly change the vibe because I, especially this time of year when it's, you, you're lucky to get sunlight in the morning before you go to work. So yeah, I got to make sure I get a little bit. Okay. So we talked a little bit about obviously circadian rhythm, a little bit about environment. Let's talk a little bit about sleep anxiety because I think a lot of people talk about sleep stuff, but they don't talk about the end result of somebody. I spent decades where I didn't sleep well. I ended up going back and getting dental work actually because of airway resistance. But like walking into the bedroom was like anxiety provoking because I all I was thinking is, yeah, tonight's going to suck just like it does every night. <laughs> And, and people don't think about that. So tell me a little bit about what, what people might be able to identify if this is going on for them. Yeah. So sleep anxiety is a really common occurrence. And so what I really recommend that people do is they really designate some kind of a wind down routine for themselves where they are not getting stimulated by light or things on in the media. They're doing relaxing things. And I don't want I don't want people to come out thinking that they have to have this stringent like routine that can't be bothered you want to have a you want to build in a little bit of flexibility but you want to really select a few things in the repertoire that are relaxing and that could be a lot of different things that could be journaling meditating breath work gentle stretching and so those are really good things to do before bed i really caution people against relying on those relaxation practices only before bed because with us being so busy during the day, a lot of us are just in that mode all day long. We never really stop and give ourselves pause to take in or reflect, process our thoughts and emotions. And so when we don't do that during the day, we open the door in a very profound way for all of those things to just come up right before bed or during our sleep. So what I recommend for people to do if they've got that kind of anxious thing going on is do mindfulness snacks during the day. And mindfulness snacks are really just three 10-minute breaks during the day. And they could be meditation, breath work. It could be sitting in silence. It could be just going outside for a walk without taking your phone. Just to give yourself that space during the day to have time with your thoughts and reflection so that you can do that processing before your head hits the pillow. So important. Feeling off, hormones might be out of whack. Take my quick quiz to discover your personalized hormone balance and get a free private report with your individualized results. Learning on in your hormones and start feeling like yourself again. Just visit the website quiz.hormoneshelp.com to take the hormone quiz now. Oh, yeah. So I've got a couple questions because this is always a conversation with particularly my women. I remember reading an article and I, I should have probably found it before we got on today 
But it was some statistics on married couples that sleep in separate rooms. And statistically, like they have better marriages. I've had a lot of women use that as ammo. Like, there's a lot of, because a lot of times we might be in a room with a partner and it doesn't have to be a guy. It could be same sex couples or whatever. We may be in a room with a partner who snores, right? And I, I can tell you my own experience. I need to be out cold and asleep because if anything wakes me up, then it's harder for me to get my brain to wind back down and go back to sleep. So a snoring partner or a par- all those things are challenges. So what do you say to those kind of things? Because sometimes that's a, now you're getting into like relationship coaching. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I love this topic. So I think the statistic is about 25% of couples sleep apart for whatever reason. That could be the snoring. It could be they have different chronotypes. So one's an early bird, one's a night owl, and their sleep schedules are not syncing up. And so I think in the past, it's been this almost taboo thing to sleep apart. And the sleeping apart has been named sleep divorce. It's out in the kind of popular culture. And I really do not like that term at all. So there's a term called sleep alliance that I prefer a lot more because it's not implying divorce. It's not implying there's anything wrong. The people who I know who implement the sleep alliance of sleeping separately have great relationships because they're sleeping well. And then in the daytime, they're in a good mood, right? And one thing that people could do if they want a compromise, because sometimes one of the partners is a little more resistant than the other. This often works out well is sleeping separately during the week and then on the weekend coming together in the same bed, I think can be a nice compromise for people who are not on the same page. There's a book called Sharing the Covers, which I recommend to anyone who is struggling with these sort of couple sleep relationships. It's by Wendy Troxell, and she's probably like the world's most foremost, world's best expert in this whole subject of couples and sleeping, because it's just something that doesn't get talked about enough. And we need to really shine a light on this issue a lot more and make it so that people who want to not sleep in the same room are not shamed or made to feel like they're being a bad partner for wanting to separate in the sleeping spaces. And then just a little add on to this about the snoring. If your partner is snoring, I beg you, please have them get a sleep study. I can't tell you how many friends has who have husbands who snore and they just, they've gotten used to it. They've, oh, well, he snores. I'm like, there's a problem. There's a huge problem is snoring is not normal. So if your partner is snoring on the regular, it's time to get a sleep study for sure. Cause there's so many unintended health consequences of untreated sleep apnea that we just really need to make that kind of an issue of getting looked at. And one of the things that people often come back with is I don't want to be on a CPAP machine. Okay. So there are other things that are offered to people these days who have sleep apnea other than a CPAP machine. There's oral appliances, there's surgeries, like you mentioned, there's devices, there's all sorts of things. So it's a booming like area of sleep, like the sleep apnea segment of sleep is probably the fastest growing one because of the technology and just the prevalence. People want more options. Absolutely. It's So the simple fact is nobody would hand a pack of marbles to their partner and tell them to smoke it every day. But essentially, you are shortening their life more by not having them that sleep stuff addressed than if they smoked. Because sleep apnea will shorten your life on average by nine years, smoking by seven. So it's, it is dramatic. Like I spent almost four years in braces as an adult going through palate expansion and a stupid amount of money 
because I didn't, I was like, I, I can already tell you I sleep well. And I wanted the benefit of being able to breathe beyond just sleeping, but it's like night and day difference. And I didn't even snore. That I would say is the other thing that I think a lot of people may have sleep problems and they don't recognize that they could have sleep architecture problems that may be physiological or something else. And just because they don't snore like a freight train, they don't think it's there. And statistically, women have a much lower threshold for disruption there for damage, which yeah. means that we're going to show health consequences at a much lower rate of problem. Yeah. yeah. And another thing about sleep apnea in women, there's a statistic that has been released recently. 90% of women who have sleep apnea go undiagnosed. And that is criminal almost. So many women are going to their primary care doctors because they have sleep apnea. And the doctor will do a quick discussion with them. And the woman will walk away with an antidepressant because the doctor is not asking the right questions. So not only is she getting probably her sleep architecture messed up because of the antidepressant, she's also not getting her sleep apnea treated. It's a huge problem. We need a lot more education with doctors on how to screen women for sleep apnea because sleep apnea for men is easier to screen. There's an actual a test called StopBang, which is like a validated questionnaire, but it's not validated for midlife women. And that's really sad because when m women are in midlife, their rates of sleep apnea are basically matched to those of men. It needs to be an issue that's brought to light a lot more often. Absolutely. It's 100% right. And it gets completely overlooked. Okay. So we talked about the anxiety around sleep and other stuff. So tell my listeners, like, obviously, many of them may be on something that they're using for sleep medically, right? Medical prescriptions. And maybe they're working with their provider and they do need to work with whoever's prescribing it, like you said, to titrate appropriately, to slowly work their way off of it. Tell them what they would expect back to working with somebody like yourself, because like you said, this is the area that gets missed. The doctor's cool. I'm going to lower your dose. Now, hopefully they know what they're doing. But if you aren't addressing all those other pieces, chances are they're going to have a rebound effect and they're going to go back on it because they couldn't get off the medication. Yes. So I call myself a holistic sleep coach and people are like, what the heck is that? So what it is essentially is a sleep coach who is able to help you sleep better without medications. So a lot of people come to me knowing my own story. They've read about me online or they've seen my website. They know I was on Ambien for so long. And that resonates with them because either they're on something and they want to stop or they're considering something. They're considering taking something and they don't want to. So the way that I work with people is if they are on some kind of medication, we we definitely contract with their provider to get their, that buy-in, to get the doctors that are signing off on it. But really, the biggest thing that helps people get off sleep medications is building their sleep confidence. And one of the tools that I use in my own practice is called CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. And so it's a very powerful way of dealing with insomnia. It's been around since the 80s, and it's actually been shown to be more effective short-term and long-term than sleeping pills. And a lot of people are like, what? A lot of doctors don't even really know what it is. There are not that many people in the country, in the world, who really administer CBTI. So what I do is I take elements of CBTI when it's appropriate and apply them with my clients. But I'm also looking at overall things that concern their health. I'm like, I'm looking at their diet. I'm looking at their movement, their chronotype, their routines, their circadian rhythm. So there's a bunch of tools in my toolkit that I actually use to help them with their sleep and also build the confidence that they need to have in their sleep if they want to get off the sleeping pills. 
Yeah, because I think that's such a huge part of the process. It's it's like anything. People look at it and they might say, why would they need a sleep coach or why would they need a nutritionist and health coach? Because that's part of our paradigm in our medical practice. And I'm like, at the end of the day, just removing a pill or adding a pill is usually not going to be effective. And there's all these other parts that we have to put together. And for the most part, even myself, I either can't be trusted <laughs> I'm going to deviate, right? Because I'm going to negotiate with myself and I'm going to be like, eh, I'm not going to do that tonight. I don't feel like it because I don't have any accountability. Or I may not have all the tools and the techniques or I'm using a technique that I read about, but it may not be the right one for me because maybe there's five or six versions that are different ways I could address it. And so I think the coaching piece for people, it's an industry. Coaching has been around for a long time and we're used to thinking about it, obviously, in the name of sports. But when I still to this day will talk to people and they're like, I don't understand what a health coach is or what a sleep coach is. I'm like, OK, does your kid play select soccer? OK, yeah. So you spend a lot of money and time on your kid's soccer. You should spend a little bit on yourself. Same thing. I love that. <laughs> oh, Betty, I need to take you with me everywhere I go. <laughs> oh, because I tell people all the time, we've been open for almost 20 years and we've always had health coaches. So we were the first ones hiring health coaches. Yeah. And I'm like, they're my secret weapon. You don't need to show up to me and talk to me about how Diet Coke has a hold on you. Like we need this accountability and this coach with you in the trenches. And so it is. And sleep is such a huge part. And if they don't have somebody like you, they may fall back. Yeah. And that's so important. Yeah. It's really tempting to regress to the behaviors that you know are not serving your sleep well. And if there's something called the Hawthorne effect, basically, when you know you're being watched, you typically will perform better. So if you have a coach, a health coach, sleep coach, like looking in at your habits every day, you're going to be more likely to really follow the recommendations. So there's so much to be said for that accountability piece. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, because those daily habits that you're new putting in become habit when you do them frequently. And it's not 21 days. It's 21 days to get on the schedule, a year to become a habit, two years probably to become identity. And then probably at that point, you might be cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a lot longer process than people usually say it is. Yeah, I can't stand it when people are like, oh, it's 21 days to be a habit. I'm like, no, like that just means you got on your schedule and you started being somewhat consistent. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, you obviously given so much great information on the podcast so far, but you have a free gift that you want to share with my listeners. And we'll have links, obviously, in the show notes as well. Tell them a little bit about the freebie that you're sharing with them. Yes, it is a free mini course called Sleep Reset Solution. And it's really about morning and evening routines that help set you up for better sleep. So if you're in the very beginning stages of the sleep journey and you're wanting some very easy, actionable tips, this would be a great thing for you to check out. Again, free on my website for you to, to get. Awesome. And like I said, we'll have links on the show notes for that freebie so you can go out and click on it and get the course. And then Morgan is also on Instagram under morgan.wellness. So we can find you there as well. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. It Reach out to me. I love chatting about sleep. So don't be a stranger. Yeah. And just don't do it late at night. Yeah. yeah so she's not going to be answering your, your Instagram DM at nine o'clock. That's right. That's not going to happen. All right. Morgan, thank you so much for being on Menopause Mastery. Thank it's you, been, Betty. It's, it's been great. and a great conversation. Okay, everybody. If you loved this episode, I have two favors to ask. One is leave a review because that's how people find out about this. And we can help millions of women across the United States and across the world. And the other is to subscribe and share because that's, again, how friends and family get better as we share the information as we learn it. So thank you for listening to Menopause Mastery. I'll be back next week. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend 
to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at bettymurray.com. 